And welcome to History for Weirdos. We are your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. To the very first episode in our very long hiatus. Yeah, I don't even know how long it's been. <laughs> it's been, yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a little bit too long. We're a little rusty, friends. Well, yeah, we are a little <laughs> bit rusty. This is like, a, what, our like third attempt? Yeah, <laughs> starting this Starting again. I, I remember back in the day when we were really hitting a groove, we could just bust these out like it was nobody's business. Mm-hmm. And now it's a little bit harder, but we're, so, you know, we're trying our best. So bear with us, everyone. We're excited to be recording new episodes to share with you all. I think that's where it comes from a little bit. It's like, I'm so excited Mm -hmm. about this. Um, I didn't realize like how much I love doing this until it was, you know. Yeah, we, we both really missed it. Um, but to be honest, we weren't sure if anyone outside of our family was listening. Right. Like my dad, and my sister, Sophia, what's up, Sophie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were constantly listening. And then we just had like random family and friends, you know, talk to us about it. But we didn't think anyone would miss us. And right. what a lovely, lovely surprise it was to have folks email us and tell us episodes they liked and they yeah. wanted more. I mean, dozens of you guys reached yeah. out to us and it was so heartwarming. I mean, mm-hmm. I honestly felt so, so good about that. So yeah. thank you guys so much. We really didn't like realize or fully comprehend how much you guys missed this. So yeah, and please continue emailing us if you're listening and you want us to cover like a certain story or you just want to say hi. We, it, and honestly, every time we get an email from a listener, it makes our day. It really does. So and thank you all. We're not lying. I mean, it really does make our day. Yeah. And again, you can email us at historyforweirdos at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank yes. So <laughs> Stephanie, our first episode back in mm-hmm. almost a year and a half now, yeah. who are you planning on speaking about or what I should say? Ooh, well, my love, I will be telling us the story of Ernest Hemingway and his curious quarantine companions. Oh, man. Okay. I love Ernest Hemingway. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, very beloved American writer. And this is a funny story. There's so much to say about him and his family and his writing and his wives, um, (laughs) many wives that he had. But this is this story kind of focuses on a summer where he was quarantined with some curious companions. Since we're coming out of a quarantine, I hope wherever you are, those who are listening, your life is getting less and less quarantined as well. We are in Los Angeles and thankfully COVID numbers are down here. So yeah. Yeah. We can pretty much go anywhere. Just, mm-hmm. you know, like people have to wear a mask in other parts of California. You don't even need the mask. It's yeah. California has pretty low rates. Yeah. We're um, pretty lucky in that regard. Yeah. But so since since we're not in the thick of it, I thought yes. it was okay to share the story. <laughs> yes. Long gone are the days of the flatten the curve. Remember those? Yes. We even mentioned that in an episode yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. Hopefully long gone. Hopefully those days do not return. Oh, crossing my fingers. Now on to Ernest Hemingway. On to Ernest Hemingway. So I'm going to start 
by citing my sources. Yeah, remember that, guys, how I'd always not <laughs> cite my sources, and now Stephanie is making fun of me once again. Yeah, The there joke you go. just, that never dies. Because it's plagiarism otherwise. <laughs> you have to cite your sources. Wait, so plagiarism isn't okay? It's not chill. Oh, okay, okay. It's not chill. I'll remember that for future reference. <laughs> so I got my information for this episode, for this story, from quite a few different places. One was a PBS article. Mm. Um, which was a biography on Hadley Richardson. Uh, two biography.com articles. One article was called The Many Wives of Ernest Hemingway by, I think their name is pronounced UD Pack. Um, and the other biography.com article is Ernest Hemingway, How Mental Illness Plagued the Writer and His Family by Miss Barbara Marazzani. A Town and Country article by Leslie M. M. Bloom, a New York Times article from 1961 that didn't have an author. And I also referenced this fictional, this really cool, I have the book, uh, The Paris Wife by Paula McLean. It's a fictionalized first person perspective of Hadley Richardson's life with Ernest Hemingway. I'm guessing that's one of his wives. It's his first wife and she will come up a lot in the story. Um, the book is really good. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend it if anyone's looking for some like historical fiction. Oh, nice. And then of course, Wikipedia. Because... I mean, like, can we not have Wikipedia? I mean, it's, I think it's impossible not to have it. We could not do this podcast without <laughs> Wikipedia. True words have never been said. <laughs> okay. So as I mentioned, Ernest Hemingway spent a summer in quarantine and mm-hmm. that is the summer of 1926. Oh, okay. And I found some fun facts about the summer of 1926. Oh yes, let's hear them. They were fun to me that <laughs> I just thought would be cool to share to put us into context so that we know where we're at in the world. You know what I mean? Noise. Okay. So in the summer of 1926, DeFord Bailey is the first African-American to perform in Nashville's the Grand Old Opry. Oh yeah, we've been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number two, so interesting, the College Board administered the first SAT exam. I didn't know the SATs were that old. Yeah. Oh, the College Board. Man, they've been having a, having a racket for almost 100 years now. Almost 100. That was so shocking to me. That I is. thought it was so much more modern. And also for all you non-American listeners, the oh, yeah. SAT is like our college entry exam. Um, yeah. The SAT or the ACT, ACT is are typically what schools require to look at. They look at your scores for admissions purposes. There is a big movement to remove those tests from, you know, educational requirements. But mm-hmm. right now, it's, I'd say it's still the standard. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> and then last but not least, in the summer of 1926, Houdini stayed in a coffin underwater for an hour and a half before escaping. <laughs> okay, so many questions. I feel like we could do an entire episode <laughs> just on that. Isn't that weird? That's so weird. Now, talk about a freaking weirdo. So now you know where we're at. Summer yeah. of 1926. It's a weird time. It's a weird time. It's like, you know, also, you know, the roaring 20s are going on. Yeah. Great Depression hasn't hit or yet hit. Yeah. Okay. So let me start off by sharing a bit about beloved Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Miller Hemingway was born on July 21st, 1899. Nice. He was raised in Oak Park, Illinois. He's a Midwestern lad. Mm-hmm. And he enlisted to be an ambulance driver during World War I and was sent to the Italian front. He was then injured and sent home. Um, and during that time of his life is where he got the inspiration to write A Farewell to Arms. 
Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. For those who may not know, but I'm sure we all do, he was an American journalist, novelist, and short story writer. He is also the founder, creator, whatever, of the iceberg (laughs) theory. It's a writing technique where basically, like, you say something really simple on the surface, and it has significantly deeper meaning beneath. Like an iceberg, right? You only mm. see the tip of an iceberg, which right. is like 10% of it. And then 90% of it is below water. So Ernest Hemingway's writing style was very unique for the time. Think of before um, Ernest Hemingway's generation, we think of very romanticized writing, mm. which was very lengthy, dense descriptions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But he was very famous for very simple language, very digestible writing, but it still was profound, you know, kind of like Mm -hmm. profound without being too uh, hoity-toity or inaccessible. Right. It sounds like you know a lot about it. Do you use that type of writing in your writing? (laughs) (laughs) I'd say like everyone, not everyone, I'd say a lot of modern day writers do aspire to that Mm. level of um, clarity Stephen King's really famous for writing very clear, concise language as well. And um, Bukowski was also known for that in his poetry. But Hemingway is credited kind of with like starting this. Okay. So he was part of the lost generation. And this part I'm just going to quote directly from Wikipedia because they explained it really well. This is the generational cohort that was in early adulthood during World War I. They were referred to as lost because they were disoriented, wandering, and directionless after um, the post-war period. Mm. So it sounds like millennials of today. Kind of, yeah. But without the terrible world war. War. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The term is also particularly used to refer to a group of American expatriate writers living in Paris during the 1920s. Right. And now we're in the 2020s. Mm. No, but we will get to these these folks in my oh, story. Okay. Gertrude Stein is credited with coining that term. Um, and the term was subsequently popularized by our Mr. Ernest Hemingway. He used it in an epigraph for his 1926 novel, which will also come up later in the story. The sun also rises in the epigraph. It says you are all a lost generation. Wow. That is really inspiring and uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> A feel-good guy. Oh, yeah, and also 1926. Isn't this story going to take place in mm-hmm. 1926 as well? The oh, summer of 1926. Excellent. Yes, that's why I said it'll come up later. Oh, okay. Um, what was I saying? Hemingway produced <laughs> most of his work between the mid-1920s and the mid-1950s. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1954. That's, it's, it's real hard to do. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not easy to win the Nobel Prize. It's not. Okay, okay. In case you didn't know that. Okay, I know that now. Thank well, you. you're welcome. So that's Ernest Hemingway. Ernest, this, our boy. He's one character in this story. The other is his first wife, Hadley Richardson. Okay. She was born Elizabeth Hadley Richardson on November 9th, 1891 in St. Louis, Missouri. And she was the youngest of five children. Oh, wow. So she's like eight years older than he is. She is. Huh. Her mom, Florence, was a musician and a singer. Her dad, James, worked at a family-owned pharmaceutical company. Hmm. Hadley herself was also a pretty gifted musician, which is something that people tend to overlook. 
Um, she had a really difficult childhood, though, particularly marked by two events. Mm-hmm. And I guess I should have said this at the beginning, but you live and you learn. I'm saying it now. Yeah. <laughs> For any, it's it's a trigger warning. For folks who don't want to hear about any deaths by suicide, um, it does come up a lot in this episode. I don't go into any graphic details or anything like that. But if it's just a topic that you're not interested in listening to right now, you don't have to listen. It's okay. Um, But I will go on as this will come up quite a few times. Okay. So back to her two really tragic life events as a kid. Um, she fell out of a second story window and was on bed rest for a year. Oh, man. So she missed out on a lot of childhood things because even after that, her mom was really overprotective of her, kind of oh. made her stay inside all the time, didn't want her to go play. So she didn't really have, by her account, a normal childhood. Mm-hmm. And then her dad, James, died by suicide in 1903. And... Um, According to Hadley, it was because the family incurred some really bad financial struggles and and it was very difficult for him to continue on. Um, as a teen, she was described as shy and self-doubting. Oh, I know. But she decided to go to a college called Bryn Mawr. Have you ever heard of it? Never heard of it. No. Me neither. Uh, she went to college despite, you know, being kind of an anxious, shy person. But sadly, that same year, her freshman year of college, her sister died in an apartment fire. Oh, my God. And that's when Hadley had kind of a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, at this time, mental health isn't really talked about. So I don't know further details. It's just she was very nervous. Mm -hmm. So her mom decided she was, quote, too delicate, both physically and emotionally. And she made Hadley come home. And Hadley took care of her mom for the next eight years. Oh, my God. Jeez. So it's Hadley. She went through a lot. Yeah, it's a lot already. As a young woman. A lot. And she's, like, only in her, what, like, 18? Yeah. So think of her life as, to some degree, kind of sheltered, but also exposed to a lot of pain and trauma that most people would maybe experience in a lifetime. She had it all before she was an adult. Um. But then in October of 1920, weeks, just weeks after her mom passes away, her mom was chronically ill and her Mm -hmm. mom passed away from her illness, Hadley decided, you know what, I'm going to go to Chicago and visit a friend out there. Her friend coaxes her into going going to this party. Hadley didn't really like parties, but she goes anyway. And there she met a young writer who was more than seven years younger than her, who is named Ernest Hemingway. I think I've heard of him. I think I've heard of him too. Um, About that night, Hemingway later said, quote, the moment she entered the room, an intense feeling came over me. Hemingway remembered many years later, quote, I knew she was the girl I was going to marry. End quote. One of them. (laughs) (laughs) I knew she was the first girl I was going to marry. Yeah, come on, Ernest. Yeah. Not so Ernest, are we? (laughs) Hadley said that falling in love with Ernest was like a great explosion into life. Oh, that's actually pretty sweet. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Particularly after all the pain and crap she had to go through. Seriously. So they spent the next year mostly living in different cities. 
and dating, but dating mm -hmm. through letter writing. Like they were oh, together, but they okay. spent almost a year just writing letters to each other. And it was through these letters that Hadley really pointed out to Ernest, you're a very good writer. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but uh, you should do this. You should take this seriously. <laughs> <laughs> she helped boost oh. his confidence in it. Yeah. Um, and then on September 3rd, 1921, so like less than a year after meeting, Hadley and Ernest Hemingway married in Michigan. Wow. People back in the day. Mm -hmm. I know. They didn't even live in the same city during that time. Yeah. Then January 1922, the newlyweds moved to Paris. Oh, wow. Uh, That's so cool. To start a new cool. life together. Remember, I was talking about the lost generation also refers to the American expats in Paris. Yes. Oh, so here we go. Here we go. That's them. They lived in a small apartment in the Latin Quarter while Ernest worked as a correspondent for the Toronto Star, but they actually mainly lived off uh, a small trust that Hadley had from the family pharmaceutical company, mm -hmm. but they, they weren't well off. Like he was getting paid very little and they were definitely rationing what she had inherited. So they're not right. wealthy, but they're young and in love and in Paris. Um, good it, times. Yeah, very good times. It was here that the couple became friends with other famous American writers and artists, such as James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound. Oh, wow. So, yes, those are some big hitters. Yes. Gertrude Stein, super famous. She was connected to so many artists of that era. Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote as well, but she was really good at like spotting talent and helping people finesse their art and their Ooh, work. That's cool. She was a good contact to have at that time. Yeah. On October 10th of 1923, Hadley gave birth to John Hadley Hemingway in Toronto. The baby was named for his mother and in honor of a Spanish bullfighter, Ernest admired. But the nickname they give this poor boy is Bumby. 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 Wow, this kid never had a chance. They only refer to him as Bumby moving forward. So That's I'm really, sorry. really disappointing. Bumby. Bumby. And also Toronto. Like, what? I guess they must have been going back and forth between Toronto and Paris. Yeah, I don't know why they gave birth in Toronto, but they did. Not even mm. the United States, which is odd. It's really weird, yeah. But that's where Bumby was born. So at this time, they are young new parents. They are, they are drinking a lot. Like a lot, a lot. They drink with their friends quite frequently. I know that they were very famous for being big users of absinthe. Mm. Um, you know, they're in their 20s, so they're partying, right? right? But they are new parents and they are newlyweds. So at one of those parties in 1925 in Paris again, the Hemingways met a Vogue writer named Pauline Pfeiffer, a.k.a. Fife. Fife, okay. <laughs> Fife and Hadley quickly become friends. Um, Hadley is very often, even as an adult, described as shy. Mm -hmm. And something really iconic of this era of the 1920s is women's fashion, right? A lot of the fashion was seen as very revolutionary, very feminist in the shorter hemlines, the the boyish silhouettes, all the women were cutting their hair off. Mm -hmm. Very iconic things that we know about that we know of. But Hadley was not very fashion forward, right? She wasn't super trendy. Um, 
she kept long hair for a long time. I think eventually she does cut it off, but she's just not like hip. She's yeah quieter and more sensitive. Okay. But Pauline Pfeiffer or Fife is literally a Vogue writer. So she's very stylish, very vivacious. Um, they're quite different. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's what attracted them to each other to become friends, but they did quickly become friends. And then every year, the Hemingways would go to Pamplona. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Did you ever, Andrew studied abroad in Pamplona? I did, college. yes. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on the show. I don't know. Did you ever, um, did they have like an apartment that Ernest Hemingway went to? I know. I think there was, I remember like taking a tour once and then and then someone mentioned like, oh yeah, this is where Ernest Hemingway stayed or yeah. something along those lines. But there, it wasn't like a really big deal. They kind of just like glossed over it. He's super, super into, you'll hear a few times into the bullfighting. Yeah. And he would go to Pamplona all the time. That was his thing. Yeah. And that's for people who don't know, that's where they have the running of the bulls every year. It's mm-hmm. in Pamplona, Spain. That's what it's famous for. Yeah. So like I said, every year the Hemingways went to Pamplona and they'd go with a group of friends. And the year they met Fife, she went with them. And that is where uh, some things began. But let me tell you a bit about Pauline Fife Pfeiffer. She was born in Iowa on July 22nd, 1895. Um, She grew up very Catholic and very rich. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. She was a writer and a journalist, mm-hmm. and she moved to Paris for her job at Vogue, the dream. <laughs> and while many rich Americans had moved to Paris at that time to party, mm-hmm. honestly, like this lost generation, they were very much seen as like disenchanted with the world, kind of aimless, and they found a lot of their escape in drinking and partying. She was very hardworking. That's not why she was in Paris. She was in Paris to further her career Mm. and to be known as a journalist. Um, She worked for Vogue, as I mentioned. She also, I believe, was a writer for Vanity Fair. So two very iconic um, magazines. Those are more like fashion-oriented, right? Mm -hmm. They're fashion-oriented, but they have really... There's always very famous articles about like politics, about literature, about art. Okay, so it's kind of like all encompassing. It's like a lifestyle magazine. Right. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So, we're getting to the quarantine. But before, there's a quarantine. Mm-hmm. Spring, 1926. Hadley became aware that Ernest was having an affair with Fife. Wow, so that's her best friend. That's her best friend in Paris and her husband. Mm. Okay. I don't know how she found out, but... I do believe that like their group of American friends, like all everyone kind of knew. I imagine she heard people talk about it and then yeah. confronted him. And he was like, yeah. He's like, yeah. So. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting that the couple had other issues in addition to both of them being prone to really excessive drinking and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my own opinion from things that I've read about them throughout the years. I don't think they had like a smooth relationship. Mm. Um, Years later, Hadley would comment the following about Fife and her affair with Ernest. She said, quote, she didn't go straight for my husband, but once she made up her mind that he was what she wanted, she was very aggressive and he couldn't help himself. Bummer. That's like really sad. Yeah. So she finds out about the affair 
and she from what I understood of like in my research she doesn't make it stop she doesn't demand that they stop I think she was trying really hard to be okay with them being together in a different capacity um and obviously now this day and age people have different types of relationships and there's open marriages there's lots of different ways of doing things but I get the sense and you can tell me if you agree as I go on that Mm -hmm. it's not like she was oh yeah like I'm cool and content with this like she wasn't okay with it but she was willing to just be like fine Mm -hmm. she was willing to put up with it to be with him because again remember she she described being with him as an explosion into life she was so sheltered and in so much pain and then she met him and she got this big beautiful life i think she was really reluctant to let him go i see yeah that makes sense yeah so that summer of 1926 after she finds out about the affair um hemingway went to spain to see the bullfighting on his own (laughs) while (laughs) he really loved this bullfighting he loved it while hadley took bumby to Cap Bumby. Bumby. She took him to Cap d'Antibes in France to stay at a villa of their bougie rich friends, Sarah and Gerald Murphy, in their now legendary uh, villa, which was called the Villa Americana. Oh, okay. Which sat overlooking the Mediterranean. Oh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, their friend Pablo Picasso painted Sarah Murphy several times in 1923. One of the paintings, if anyone wants to Google it, is Buste de Femme. Oh, so wow. the Murphys are, like, very well connected. They're very yeah. rich. They know all the cool writers, the cool artists. And they have this villa. So Hadley and Bumby are like, let's go hang. But Bumby has a cough. Oh, poor Bumby. Poor Bumby. <laughs> he has a cough. The moment they arrive, the Murphys have these three kids of their own, and they're super you know, sketched out by the intensity of his coughing. Mm-hmm. And they call their doctor to come and make a house call. Um, the doctor's diagnosis is whooping cough, unfortunately. We don't have that too often today, do we? For those who may not know. Oh, okay. It's highly contagious respiratory tract infection. In many people, it's marked by severe hacking cough followed by a high-pitched intake of breath that sounds like a whoop, hence the name. Before the vaccine was developed and made available in 1948, whooping cough was considered a very common childhood disease. Mm, Okay. So we don't have it as much anymore, but I remember in elementary school a couple of times, my parents getting letters in the mail that like a kid had whooping cough. Oh, wow. Like in my grade or at the school and they wanted everyone to get checked and remind everyone to get vaccinated and things like that. So you and I would have been vaccinated against it. Oh, yeah. I was born in the 90s. Yeah. But Bumby, not so much. So, but it's super, super contagious. Mm -hmm. So on doctor's orders, Hadley and Bumby had to leave the villa immediately. But lucky for them, two other semi-well-known American friends were in the area. F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. Wow, man, this is just like it's a star studded like episode here. It's a star studded event. They were also vacationing in Antibes and they had a small house near that villa and they let Hadley and Bumby stay there. Okay. I assume the Fitzgeralds went to the Murphy's villa in exchange, but I don't know. Um, but they heard like Hadley can't stay because of the kids, so they're like, oh, you could stay in our place. Right. 
So Hadley felt really lonely and distressed. Um, reportedly, her only coping strategy was going into town and drinking whiskey while the nanny hung out with her son. Oof. So I really want to emphasize how used to partying these two were, right? Yeah, so seriously. then to be isolated and be like, you can't party because your kid's sick. It, it was hard for her. And she was dealing with all the, the stuff going on in her marriage. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it was a good time for her. No, I don't think so. No. Then I'm sure very much so to Ernest Hemingway's surprise, one day he receives a letter from his wife, Hadley, saying that she had invited Pauline Pfeiffer to come visit her. She wrote, quote, it would be a swell joke on tout le monde, everybody, if you, Fife, and I spent the summer together. Pauline Pfeiffer had whooping cough as a kid and was immune. Mm. So Ernest Hemingway arrives to Antibes and moved into a two-bedroom house with his wife, his mistress, and two-year-old son. <laughs> wow. His commentary was, quote, it was a splendid place to write. I have no words. I, I wanted to come up with something witty, but honestly, no words. Could you imagine? No, I literally couldn't Two imagine. Two bedroom, like the sick kid, the nanny, your wife, your mistress. And he's like, this is a really dope place to write. Like what? You, he, he certainly had a mindset. Let's just, I guess, put it that way. He was dedicated to his craft. Dedicated to the craft, indeed. Okay. So the group of friends, you know, because they're the Fitzgeralds are there, the Murphys are there, the Hemingways and Pfeiffer are there. They Pablo became Picasso, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't there for this summer. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. But I'm sure they hung out with him. Yeah. They became social distancing OGs. <laughs> the Murphys and the Fitzgeralds would park their cars on the road in front of the house where the trio was staying, and they would have drinks for cocktail hour. Mm. While Hemingway, Hadley, and Pfeiffer would keep the party up on the veranda oh wow okay so they'd like social distance party mm -hmm. uh, at the end of each evening the group famously mounted their empty bottles upside down on the fence spikes of the house and by the time the hemingways left just a few weeks later the trophies completely covered the fence oh my god so they were just drinking con constantly mm -hmm. oh my god <laughs> i know i i so despite the massive hangovers <laughs> everyone must have had, good news was the quarantine worked. Bumby got better and no one else fell sick. Uh, so the Hemingway Pfeiffer gang changed locations and they rented out hotel rooms nearby. Um, Hadley later recalled, though, that they were still a very close group of three. She said Fife would even get into their bed in the morning to eat breakfast with them. Wow. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's yeah. That is a way things could be done. Again, this is not to like shame the way anyone has relationships. I just feel like Hadley's trying so hard to be cool with it. Right. And she's not like, we know she's not right, <laughs> but she's trying her best. But She's trying her best. Pauline Pfeiffer goes back to Paris um, but stays in constant communication with both the Hemingways oh, via wow. letters. Okay. Um, unsurprisingly, Hadley and Ernest's marriage did not last past the summer of 1926. <laughs> wow, what a shocker. Hemingway and his quarantine companions, it did not work out as smoothly as he thought it would. Hadley, Hadley left him because um, she couldn't handle it, like, like I said. 
She officially filed for divorce in April of 1927. Mm, okay. And less than one month after Hadley files for divorce, Hemingway marries Pauline Pfeiffer. Wow. Yeah. She she wrote to him saying, like, I'm not going to stand in, in you and Fife's way anymore. Go ahead. So, Hemingway and Pfeiffer married on May in May of 1927. Um, again, her family's super Catholic, ironically, for someone who was having an affair. <laughs> she uh, required him to convert to Catholicism. Oh, wow. Beforehand, which I think is so hypocritical i'm not gonna lie like you were having an affair with a married person and then you want them to be very catholic very pious yeah and by the way listeners uh, stephanie is catholic herself so so i can critique catholicism all day long i went to catholic school i know the ins and outs of the bs (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah you know uh the church didn't make me convert no andrew and i got married in a catholic church Mm -hmm. um but it's called an interfaith marriage now because <laughs> he's like... non-denominational Christian. Yeah. Um, so we were we were granted permission to have an interfaith marriage. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so absurd. Yeah. So by the end of that year, Pauline Pfeiffer was pregnant and she wanted to move back to the United States. So mm-hmm. they actually moved to Key West, Florida. Oh, cool. Which is funny because Key West, Florida, I believe, has t- to this day is the home of many American writers. Oh, okay. Um, lots and lots tend to buy homes there, which is crazy. So we have to go. Yeah. Uh, Pfeiffer and Hemingway had two children, Patrick and Gregory. Gregory is later known as Gloria. Hemingway uh, drew upon Pfeiffer's difficult labor with one of their children to base his character Catherine in A Farewell to Arms. Oh, wow. Okay. It, you see that throughout um, reading about him. He draws so much from his personal life into his writing. Wow, that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. In 1937, on a trip to Spain, Hemingway began an affair with Martha Gellhorn. Wow, man. He, and then I he, see a trend here. And then he divorces Pauline Pfeiffer, November 4th, 1940, and he marries Gellhorn three weeks later. Again, the uh, I really see... <laughs> A cyclical cycle here developing. I, I don't know if you guys have, you know, heard this or and have realized this, but I certainly have. He he's a man of habit. <laughs> we could say that. Oh yeah, we could say that. Yeah, definitely. It was said by those who knew him that later in his life, Ernest Hemingway really romanticized his marriage to Hadley, his first wife. Oh. He really looked back on it like, wow, she was the one and I messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hadley's life after Hemingway on October 22nd, 1926, um, I believe that's when the sun also rises was published, Okay. which he dedicated to her, to Hadley and, uh, the novel immediately sold really well. And despite the fact that Hadley was leaving him, Hemingway insisted that she receive all the royalties because she's the one that paid the bills and gave him space to write the book. Wow. So, I mean, the rest of her life, imagine the royalties she was, she was getting from just that. just set, yeah. Mm-hmm. After her marriage to Hemingway officially ended, Hadley stayed out of the public spotlight. She stayed in France for seven more years and married a journalist and political writer named Paul Maurer in 1933. And soon after, they moved back to the United States, where they spent a lot of their time drinking and fishing. <laughs> Those were their two hobbies that they were known for. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Um, 
Hadley is the title of a biography that was published by Gioa Di Liberto hmm. in 1992, which talks a lot about obviously her life with Hemingway. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, this was reissued as Paris Without End. So it was called Hadley, then it was called Paris Without End, the true story of Hemingway's first wife. Oh, okay. That same year in 2011 is when the Paula McLean fiction novel, The Paris Wife, uh, was published. So there was kind of this big resurgence and an interest in who was Hemingway's first wife. Mm -hmm. Um, And The Paris Wife was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. So in... For the rest of Hemingway's life, he, as we all know, has a lot of literary success, but he also does experience quite a bit of pain and tragedy. Mm -hmm. In December 1928, when Hemingway was 29, his father died by suicide. After many years of personal and financial struggles, his death, understandably, really shook Ernest. Mm -hmm who processed this loss in his book, For Whom the Bell Tolls, where the father figure character also dies in a similar way. Wow. He really just took it like straight from his personal life into his books. And very sadly, Ernest Hemingway died on July 2nd, 1961. The announcement of his death was on the front page of the New York Times the next day. Oh my goodness. You can look at it in the New York Times archives, which I did. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read it verbatim how it was originally published. Okay. Ketchum, Idaho, July 2nd. Ernest Hemingway was found dead of a shotgun wound in the head at his home here today. His wife, Mary, Mary is his fourth wife, by the way. Okay. His wife, Mary, said that he had killed himself accidentally while cleaning the weapon. The body of the bearded, barrel chested writer, clad in a robe and pajamas, was found by his wife in the foyer of their modern concrete house. A double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun lay beside him with one chamber discharged. Mrs. Hemingway, the author's fourth wife, whom he married in 1946, issued this statement. Mr. Hemingway accidentally killed himself while cleaning a gun this morning at 7.30 a.m. No time has been set for funeral services, which will be private. Mrs. Hemingway was placed under sedation. End quote. That was like, isn't that haunting? That is. That it seems so like sterile. Yes. Like just like almost formulaic. It was so. It's so interesting how they used to write about those things. Um, Mm -hmm. And odd. And like the reason I did this little like summer thing, I thought was just like funny and quirky. But it's so hard to write about anything about Ernest Hemingway or talk about him without talking about like the darker parts of his life. Right. Absolutely. Cause they came up so much. So however, even though it was initially reported to be an accidental death, we now know um, that Ernest Hemingway struggled for many years with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Obviously his father also died by suicide. We now know that that death was uh, death by suicide. It was not an accidental cleaning of his shotgun. Right. The initial reports came out that way because his wife didn't want the public to know the details. Mm-hmm. And we can understand that because the stigma is so 
pervasive now. Right, and it was probably even worse back then. I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't really blame her at all, actually. No, no. yeah, that, she probably genuinely felt like, oh, I'm doing the right thing for him and his memory. Absolutely. But he was in treatment at the Mayo Clinic on and off for a really long time for mental health struggles. Um, wow. I think his, I don't know how this is <laughs> possible or allowed, but I saw in one of the articles I was reading that like we... We now like research his medical records and stuff. I don't know, but yeah. they believe now that he had, um, I think, bipolar two. Mm. Uh, so he was prone to that was exacerbated by his alcoholism, right? So he's right. prone to depressive states and more manic states, which really, like, you can see in his life. You think of him as this like rough and tumbled adventurer, right? Exactly. But then you also know the man had. Um, a sadder side. Yeah. So I, you know, for some of you may or may not know, I do work in mental health. Um, so I always want to talk about these things because I know they're not easy to talk about, but they're really important for us to talk about. They, mm -hmm. Mental health affects every single one of us. It does. Um, and none of this, none of this is mental health advice. Yes. Don't come at me saying I gave you mental health advice. I did not. This is a history for weirdos podcast. <laughs> okay. This is purely this entertainment. Yeah. So, okay. So this isn't like a therapy like session. No, not at all. But I do want to say if you're struggling, I can with all sincerity tell you as someone who has struggled, as someone who works with people who are struggling, you're not alone and help is always available. Oh. And I do want to share two resources that I really like that are completely free. If you're ever in a crisis, there's always the National Suicide Hotline, which is available 24-7 in English and in Spanish. And that number, just program it into your phone. You never know when someone you love might need it, when you might need it. Just save it in your phone. It is 1-800-273-8255. Then there is the Crisis Text Line, which unsurprisingly is really popular with Gen Z. Mm -hmm. because it's texting it's what it sounds like instead of talking to someone on the phone if you don't have privacy or you can't bring yourself to talk on the phone you can always text so you can text the word home like i have a home to seven four one seven four one and again you can connect with a crisis counselor 24 7 wow that's really cool yeah so save those resources i've like not even in a professional way like it's come up at parties at weddings just like talking to random people i give out the, these numbers like crazy so because they're very good resources you know you definitely are like a therapist at heart uh, yes i can't help it <laughs> yeah. i can't help it it definitely makes me sad that ernest hemingway struggled for so long um but i'm very grateful as i'm sure so many of us are for the beautiful writing that he gave us yeah and I want to end this on a happier note. Yeah. <laughs> I want to quote um, The Paris Wife, that fiction book about Hadley, because um, there's a really beautiful quote, which I think gives us a very accurate insight into the way Hadley viewed Ernest Hemingway mm. and why she loved him so much. Okay. So the quote is from Hadley to Ernest. You are everything good and straight and fine and true. And I see that so clearly now in the way you've carried yourself and listened to your own heart. You've changed me more than you know, and you will always be a part of everything I am. 
That's one thing I've learned from this. No one you love is ever truly lost. Wow. That is incredibly sweet. Right? Yeah. So that is the story of Ernest Hemingway and what the summer he quarantined with his wife, mistress, and sick son. <laughs> wow, that was a roller coaster. I know. Oh my god, I need water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'll get you water in like in about like 90 seconds. Okay, great. <laughs> well, I think that's it for this week, weirdos. Um, thank you, Stephanie, for such an amazing story. Um, I thank mean you for listening. I love that was the first you know full episode that I've listened to in like almost a year and a half now. Yeah. So that it was really nice hearing it firsthand straight from your mouth. Thank you. <laughs> well, anyways, okay, enough of me being weird. Um now now to the deets. Um, you know, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this um as you will be able to get the episodes right as they air. Also, you can always find us um, on Instagram, just at things at, at History for Weirdos. We have a new website, by the way. Um, it is on, yeah. So you can still go to historyforweirdos.com. You can tell who's the tech person and who's not here uh, between the two of us. You can go to, yeah, historyforweirdos.com. But our new website also is on Anchor. And you can go onto the Anchor website and and find us there as well. Do folks just search History for Weirdos? Yeah, just search History for Weirdos and we'll be there. Um, you can also still find us on our normal spots on Spotify mm-hmm. and you know, Apple, Apple Podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of a, just like a mini update as well. Oh, um, great. Yeah, and so that, that's, I guess, all we have for you folks. Oh, wait, I want to say something. Oh, one more thing, sorry. Oh, a couple more things. Okay. One... Please, please share the podcast if you know yeah. anyone that you think is as weird as you and we are and would enjoy listening to us ramble about historical things. <laughs> please, please, please share. It helps the community grow and we love the community so much. That is point one. Point two is one of the things that was going on while we were on our hiatus was Andrew became like TikTok famous. No! <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to follow Andrew on TikTok, it's unsurprisingly, it's an ancient history TikTok. It is, yes. It's specific ancient Rome, but he dives into other areas of ancient history as well. And that's at Roma Omnia. Yeah, Roma.omnia. If you just type that into TikTok, you will find me. If you honestly, if you type in ancient Rome, you'll find me. Yeah, it's really cool. It's very funny and very informative. Um so the passion for history continues. It does. Yeah, yeah, it did and it does. Yes. Uh, just in multiple platforms now. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much, weirdos. Thank you so much, weirdos. Until next time. Until next time.